Our two scriptures today are one from Jeremiah, the beginning of Jeremiah, and the other from Luke chapter 4. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, ah, Lord God, truly I do not know how to speak, for I am only a boy. But the Lord said to me, don't say I'm only a boy, for you shall go to all to whom I send you, and you shall speak whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, now I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to pull down, to destroy and overthrow to build and to plant. Now from Luke chapter 4. Then he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, Is it not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, Do hear also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum. And he said, truly, I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a severe famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them, except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of the town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Andrew, and thank you for all who provided the amazing music this morning, uh, all the groups. It's, uh, it's impressive, and I uh, am blessed every week by the, the quality of the, the music in this place. So thank you, David, and thanks to all of you. Have you ever asked yourself, or maybe asked someone who was with you the question, <laughs> was it something I said? Uh, maybe at one time or another, you found that you were a participant in a story such as this. Sort of made this up, but maybe there's some truth in it. Maybe there's some points of connection. She's having a particularly difficult day at home. The children are running fevers, just not feeling well, not doing not doing good, which makes them whiny and irritable and prone to turning things over. Things like bowls of oatmeal and bowls of chicken noodle soup and so forth. The dryer is spinning, but it won't heat up and dry, so she hangs things out on the clothesline. One of the only houses in the neighborhood to still have a clothesline. Most of her neighbors didn't know what it was and what it was for. Passing by the back door later, she glanced outside and notices that the few 
clothes remaining on the line have been polka dotted by the birds of the air. And the remainder are being dragged all over the filthy ground in the backyard, torn and shredded by two playful puppies from next door. Entering the house with an armful of rags, she discovers water running out of the bathroom. Further investigation reveals that the little boy has decapitated the little girl's Barbie doll with a pair of hedge clippers. And the little girl has retaliated by attempting to flush little boy's G.I. Joe and the tank and the Jeep and the various other tactical weapons that go with it. Soon after this mess has been put in order, the phone rings. A nurse from the pediatrician's office says, we've called in your prescription for the children. It'll be ready at the pharmacy around 4 o'clock. So she places a bacon hen in the oven for supper and dresses the children. Wiping oatmeal off the face of her watch, she can see that it's almost 4 o'clock. So she loads the kids in the SUV and inserts and turns the key and nothing happens. The battery that he promised to have charged and or changed a few days ago is graveyard dead. Nothing to do but borrow a neighbor's vehicle, which happens to be a brand new showroom shiny Cadillac Escalade. In the drugstore, trying to keep the children from tearing open all the Reese's peanut butter cups, she remembers that she forgot her credit cards and her checkbook and thinking, well, maybe there's some money stuffed down in the side of the purse, money that had been set aside for her dues at the women's group meeting at church that night, which she had forgotten all about, and she was supposed to do the program and bring the refreshments. One remembrance led to another, and it was more and more difficult. Practically dragging one child and struggling to hang on to the other one along with the prescription, she headed to the vehicle, her neighbor's Cadillac Escalade, only to discover that somebody in an old worn-out beater of a pickup truck had backed into it, crushing the headlight on one side and buckling the shiny new fender as well. Thinking then, are my insurance premiums current? Did I, did I send the last one in? Home again, she has to park in the yard because there's a fire truck in the driveway and smoke coming out from under the front door and coming out the side door like Moses and Aaron approaching the altar of sacrifice are two firefighters holding a burnt offering that resembles just a little bit a chicken. An hour or so later, her husband comes home from work, sniffing around like he smells smoke or something. Noticing his wife working in the kitchen, he says in his best Conway Twitty voice, hello, darling. Have you had a good day? <laughs> and suddenly he finds himself ducking behind a chair, trying not to get by flying plates and cups and saucers and all sorts of things and footsteps running down the hall and a door slamming and loud, uncontrollable crying. Slips off his hat and his coat and he sits down on the couch, turns on the lamp, picks up his favorite novel, lights his pipe, and wonders aloud, was it something I said? The gospel lesson. We run up on a crowd of folks who are trying to kill Jesus. Can you imagine that? What had he done to provoke such anger? Was it something he said? Last week we talked about what led up to this story and how Jesus had gone to the synagogue and declared his mission by reading from the book of the prophet Isaiah, the scroll that had been unrolled. And he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me 
because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And Jesus gave the book, the scroll, back to the attendant and sat down. And then we have this verse, which was the closing verse last week, the opening verse this week. And he began to say to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all the people said, amen. And they were amazed at the eloquent words that were flowing from his mouth. And they whispered to one another, can this really be old Joe's boy? Now, up to this point, things are going pretty well for Jesus. Nothing he has said or done yet has upset these folk. It was an ideal homecoming. Probably dinner on the grounds afterwards. Just a great day in that congregation. But Jesus, some would say, didn't know when to quit. And he went on to say some things that deeply upset and greatly offended the folks who were gathered in that synagogue in Capernaum. In fact, he so angered that congregation that they turned into a mob. Pitchforks and, and torches, and they drug him out of the synagogue and carried him to the top of a hill and prepared to throw him down over the edge, head first. <laughs> and maybe at this point, Jesus was thinking to himself or thinking out loud, was it something I said? What landed him in this predicament? The people wanted him to perform some miracles there like he had in his hometown, like he had in Nazareth. Word had gotten around. And they were demanding, they were expecting quite the show. And he refused to perform for them. Why he didn't heal any sick folk at that time, I'm not sure, but he refused to perform for them. And he said, no prophet is without honor except in his own country, in his own place. Why exactly didn't he do something? I don't know. It could have been that people viewed him as a performer only and they wanted to be entertained. They expected him to do whatever they said, like a puppet on a string. You pull one string and he dances and you pull another string and it looks like he's singing and they just, all these things they wanted. You remember when Jesus, right after his baptism, driven by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness, tempted by Satan, and Satan was saying, jump off the pinnacle of the temple, turn these rocks into bread, put on a show, Jesus, and everybody will love you. They will applaud you. You'll be so popular. They learned a hard lesson that day in our story now about the Savior. That is, he reveals a sovereign God, who can neither be predicted nor controlled, who is not at the beck and call of everyone who calls on him. God is not some sort of butler or chauffeur. And we can't treat God like that and expect to get our way. Not a God who will indulge our every whim. It's a lesson that a lot of us have difficulty learning Following this act of refusal, Jesus reached back into the scriptures, the recordings of the sacred traditions of his people, what we call the Old Testament, and picked out two incidents 
that added fire or fuel to the fire that he had just kindled. First of all, he brought to the congregation's attention the account of the prophet Elijah. It hadn't rained for three and a half years and folks were beginning to suffer and they didn't have enough to eat. They couldn't gather enough in. And so Elijah goes to the home of a widow, a foreign widow woman, when there were countless widows in need in the land of Israel. Why did Jesus bring that up? And then another incident, the prophet Elisha cleansed a leper named Naaman who was an African. Now did Jesus bring these things up for the express purpose of aggravating people, offending people, angering people? Of course not. I don't think. Even though he pretty well knew what kind of reaction he would receive from the congregation that day. Jesus spoke the truth in love, hoping to open eyes that were spiritually closed and hoping to pry open minds that had sealed off any access to the great truths of God. They thought they had it all figured out. He wanted the folks to realize that the love of God is not to be enclosed by fences or walls or barriers of any sort that they had erected to separate themselves from folks that they deemed to be less worthy. His words, had they really been heard, would have helped and healed, but they were misunderstood and they led to conflict and rage. As Christian folk today, you and I are called often to speak the truth in love. The book of Ephesians says that we are to speak the truth in love so that we might grow in every way to him who is the head, into Christ. To speak the truth requires, first of all, that we have an assurance within ourselves that what we have to say is the truth. Jesus once said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So in a larger sense, to be able to speak the truth is to acknowledge that we have a relationship with the living God through Jesus Christ, that we have an active relationship with him, a saving knowledge of him. And secondly, to speak the truth in love requires courage. This is as certain today as it was in Jesus' day. The truth will anger and as those who speak the truth, we will sometimes become objects of that anger or as if we have a target that somebody has placed on our backs. But why? Why bother? Why speak the truth in love? Because otherwise we would only offend folks without offering any kind of healing. We would only destroy people with our words without offering any hope of rebuilding their lives on the foundation of God. Without it, without love, we become just like those who pride themselves on telling it like it is. And I remember years ago when I first started hearing that expression, well, I, I like old so-and-so, he tells it like it is. Well, no, not always. He tells it like he sees it, but that doesn't mean that's the way it is. Sometimes we justify things by saying, I'm going to tell it like it is, yet those motives sometimes hurt and humiliate other persons. And so we speak with love, even hard truths, 
But the truth, even when spoken in love, can hurt. It can hurt us sometimes to say things that are difficult, and it can hurt the one to whom we speak. And let's face it, we all like to avoid pain. I wonder how many antacid tablets, how many Tylenol tablets are taken in this country every day, even by me and others. We don't like pain, physical pain certainly, but emotional pain as well. And yet, we try to keep ourselves out of awkward situations because the embarrassment can be painful. So why does truth hurt? One reason is it exposes our jealousy, our envy of others. The folks to whom Jesus was speaking were envious of the people to whom the prophets had gone. Uh, I mean, goodness gracious, we got all these widow women in need in Israel. We got all these folks walking around suffering from leprosy in Israel. Why is God caring about people who are somewhere else? And another reason the truth hurts is it convicts us of our sin. And sin simply is brokenness in our relationship with God and the relationships we sometimes have with one another. To God, to each other, to touch this sore spot and someone else hurts them causes them to withdraw and to pull back. To have someone touch this sore spot in our own life causes us to draw back. The truth uncovers and reveals, and we all have parts of ourselves that we don't want exposed. Still another reason truth hurts is it can reveal selfishness. The people Jesus spoke to believed that God belonged to them. J.B. Phillips years ago wrote a book entitled, Your God is Too Small. And one of the chapters in that book, one of the small gods is God in a box attitude. And that's the attitude that we sometimes have today, isn't it? Folks outside our church circle or our family circle or our circle of friends we regard with disdain and label as unacceptable too many times. We wonder, with all the things that make them different from us, how God could possibly love those folk as much as God loves us. The truth reveals selfishness at times, ours and others. And let me say again that as individuals, as God's church, we are called to speak the truth in love. And it's been difficult for a long time to do that. Our call is from God. That Old Testament account that Andrew read a moment ago, the call of the prophet Jeremiah, called to speak the truth. That's what prophets were called to do, to speak for God. They were not fortune teller kind of prophets. That's all something else. But they were prophets who spoke forth the word of God and the truth of God. And God said to Jeremiah, who was trying to back away from this because most days were hard days for prophets. They were often stoned and killed and ridiculed. God said, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you, set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. A prophet, one who speaks God's truth. And if God calls us, won't God give us the words to say? Jeremiah responded, as we often do, looking for a reason not to do it. But I'm only a youth. I'm only a boy. How in the world will I know what to say? And why would anybody listen to me? But God said, do not say I'm only a boy. I'm only young. For 
to all to whom I send you, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. I put my words in your mouth. If we resolve to speak the truth in love, we can lean on and believe in and trust in a God who will help us and guide us with what we need to say so that we build up, so that we do no harm, so that we don't destroy others. God will be with us. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, God said, for I am with you to deliver you. What happened to Jesus when the crowd drug him to the top of the hill? They were going to throw him over in a ditch, stone him to death, which was their preferred way of putting somebody to death, a horrible way to die, I can only imagine. But somehow he passed among the crowd and went on his way. Was that the protection of God or what? Was it just not his time? to be stoned to death, he escaped that. Later he would be nailed to a tree. But then there was resurrection. God will not give us a word to speak and then abandon us to suffer the consequences alone. There are times it's true, as the old song says, when silence is golden. But there or other times when something needs to be said. I know as a pastor, as a preacher for a long time now, I've struggled week in and week out with how to speak the truth in love. And some weeks I think I do a little better than others, but it's not my struggle alone. It belongs to all of us as God's people and God's church, and I pray that we won't neglect it. Speaking the truth in love, we run a risk of, of harming, of hurting someone else, hurting their feelings. But perhaps from that hurt can come healing and hope and salvation. And when that happens, maybe we can smile just a little bit and ask, was it something I said? Amen.